This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Achuta Advariu, who is a professor of economics at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy, where he directs the UCSD 21st Century India Center. He is also a co-founder and serves on the board of Good Business Lab, a non-profit organization dedicated to improving the well-being of low-income workers around the world. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Managerial Quality and Productivity Dynamics, joined with Anand Nishadham and Jorge Tamayo. The paper was published in the Review of Economic Studies in 2022. Achuta, welcome to the podcast. Hello, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You start the paper by saying that there has been a lot of work in the last decade and a half about uh, managerial practices, which is the set of things that firms do in order to work more efficiently. In parallel and a bit more recently, there has been uh, a lot of work on the effect that managers have on the productivity of their workers. You say that we combine these two approaches to build on recent in Insider work identifying some specific ways in which managers can enable productivity of workers and teams within the firm. Could you tell us what do you mean by this last thing? Sure. So, I mean, just to zoom out a little bit, you know, everybody who has ever worked in a in a workplace, big or small, has you know likely had some experience with uh, managers. We know that managers, you know, whether we were sort of frontline workers or doing the managing ourselves, we we know that managers do a whole host of different tasks within the firm, right? So they are involved in kind of coordinating production for their teams. They're involved in kind of the people management aspects uh, of the job. So keeping people happy and retained, then um, communicating and coordinating with their team. And they're also kind of involved in information flows. So, you know, whether something that comes up from the bottom of the organization, from frontline, and the manager thinks this is really important, I need to communicate to my higher ups, or kind of top-down directives, you know, this is a new priority for our firm, and this is what we need to be doing and focusing on from now on that kind of communication and, and uh, transfer of information. So, you know, across all of these types of tasks, Managers are really important, really kind of vital to firm performance. And I think there's, uh, as you've mentioned, and, you know, as lots of my papers start <laughs> in this vein, you know, managerial quality is incredibly important. And there's a lot of work that has started to bear that out, both in terms of correlational work that's looking at measuring this quality and kind of relating it to performance as well as causal work that is kind of in some way looking at exogenous variation in or actually going out and changing managerial quality experimentally and looking at its consequences. So we kind of try to build on this, this work by essentially thinking about what exactly managers are doing in a particular context, I can tell you about in a bit, that actually enables productivity. You know, the, the, the sort of general idea that managerial quality is important is kind of well established, but it's sort of still a black box. And that's what we were trying to tackle in this paper, that how do we kind of get inside that black box and really learn something about the particular things that managers do uh, or the particular kind of features of managers that are important for productivity. The literature on managers that we have both uh, mentioned it also looks at the mechanisms um, 
That is, maybe it starts with they're here, the manager fix effect, they seem to be important, but more and more other papers uh, have focus on the mechanism. For instance, the mechanism, say, uh, having people skills to reduce the turnover of the subordinates. Uh, in fact, right. a previous paper of yours, who has, in fact, appeared in this podcast series, uh, finds that managers can be important because they can reallocate workers to tasks when these workers are suffering negative shocks due to you know envir the environment being very polluted or something. So this paper will also be about mechanisms and the mechanism in sense it is like a managerial practice that the manager is carrying with himself or herself. Can we think of your paper as say putting different mechanisms in the same paper and trying to have like a, a horse race between them? Would this be like the the more novel yeah. or a contribution of the paper, at least in this dimension? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so I think there's there's a, a, a few things that are going on that uh, we're trying to contribute to. You know, exactly like you said, there's there are papers that, that you know, are really, I'm a big fan of some of the, the work you just mentioned. Including yours? Yeah, right. Apart from the things that I wrote, um, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a very nice growing literature in this space. Generally, that literature has tended to sort of evaluate either sort of some kind of, you know, black box program like managerial training that, you know, that sort of covers a whole bunch of uh, stuff. Or it has kind of looked at one particular dimension of managerial practice or of, of kind of managerial's, uh, manager's features. What we try to do here is kind of be a bit more agnostic ab about what might work and not work. And, and as you said, exactly sort of thinking about a horse race and what are the different contributions of the various traits and practices of managers in a kind of more holistic way, because I think it's absolutely true. You know, we might find one paper that says monitoring matters and another paper, you know, that says that people skills matter, et cetera. So how much do those things matter when you put them all together kind of, and then you allow for a, you know, arbitrary correlational structure within all these traits and practices, what does that do to, you know, productivity? So that's the kind of uh, major thing that we were trying to do in this paper. So can you tell us about the firm that you study Things like how production is organized, what do managers do here, what are the measures of productivity, and so on. Yeah, it's really a fascinating setting to do work, and I've you know um, written a lot with my colleagues in this setting. And so we we look at a, a large garment uh, production firm. Um, you might have seen a bunch of garment papers, you know, in in the economic sphere outside of my own as well. I think part of the reason is that there is often a really clear uh, measure of productivity in these settings. Um, and so that's kind of really appealing from the sort of economics study perspective, because it allows us to kind of pinpoint exactly how productive a team is in kind of a way that is comparable across a, a bunch of factories or production lines uh, or even workers in some cases. So, you know, in this particular setting, we look at productivity at the production line level. And so, you know, garment production is generally organized in, in lines. And the way that production works is that sort of if you're going to make a T-shirt, right, you've, you've got a few basic pieces of fabric that go into a T-shirt. You know, you have some sleeves, you have kind of the main garment area that covers the chest. And maybe you have a collar, maybe you have a uh, pocket, okay? Um, those pieces sort of come into the production line um, pre-cut in most garment settings. And so, you know, you have a separate department that does all that cutting for you. And then you have a collection of workers and a team 
who are kind of organized on the line, and they're sort of tasked with basically putting the garment together. So um, there's going to be several feeding points where different parts of the t-shirt would come in, such as the sleeves and the pocket. And you would have workers working to stitch on the various pieces of that garment together. And so that by the end of the production line, you've got uh, a fully constructed t-shirt. Okay. Um, and then you've got, you know, other parts of the garment process, which we're not dealing with in this paper, but, you know, things like the washing and the packing and, and that sort of thing. Effectively, the way that the production is organized, you usually have about 50 to 70 workers on a line who are making this garment. And often you have more than one worker doing sort of the same task. So you might have, you know, 10 workers who are putting on the sleeves and then you've got 20 workers who are putting on the, the pockets, etc. And then you've got some quality checking along the way, and you have some helpers who are helping you feed the, the clothes, uh, the, the pieces in. Um, the role of the manager is, is quite remarkable in this setting. So um, the immediate supervisors of the folks who are actually kind of stitching these garments on machines, um, which is the kind of managerial level that we're most concerned with in this paper, they're tasked with kind of making sure that this production has kind of good throughput and it's going efficiently as per the targets that are set by the firm. They're tasked with essentially walking up and down this line all day long resolving any bottlenecks that occur on the line, talking to the workers and figuring out, hey, why are we slowing down at this particular checkpoint? Why is quality so bad at this particular point? How can we make this better? If this machine is broken, if a spool is not working or if this needle is not, you know, is broken, how do we replace that very quickly? You know, if someone needs to take a break, how do we enable that? And then making sure at the end of the day that all the workers are actually kind of like have that end goal of meeting their targets by the end of the day. So it's actually quite an intensive and people-oriented process. And yet, just to say a word about, you know, characterizing this supervisor, what you should have in mind is it is, you know, most often a man. So it's, you know, I think in our setting, it's about 80% or a little bit more um, are men. And they have, you know, prior experience working as frontline workers. So maybe they were a machine operator at some point and they were stitching garments and then they were promoted up. Um, but there's very little, if any, managerial training that goes into the promotion process. So essentially, you usually have, you know, a worker, he might be quite efficient. Maybe he was, you know, a standout worker. He was promoted up and said, you know, tomorrow you're going to come in, you're going to manage 60 workers. Ready, set, go. You know, and so I think there's a, an incredible process that that individual has to undergo to acquire on the job these kind of really difficult skills that are involved in managing such a large team of workers. So you mentioned in the paper that there is one to three managers in charge of a line. That's right. This is fine, but isn't this potentially going to create a problem whenever you want to identify the effect of a single manager on a line? That is, if you run a regression, your regressions may be a little bit more sophisticated. But let's say that I want to run a regression with manager fixed effects. Whose fixed effect do I put on the right-hand side right. if there are three? Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is definitely an issue for doing things at the production line level. Um, you know, More often than not, we have one manager that makes things a little easier. Sometimes we do subsample analyses where we just look at lines that are managed by one manager. But, you know, in general, what we essentially adopt is a simple kind of averaging across the, you know, managers. Because 
it's impossible in this setting to, to sort of, you know, subdivide exactly kind of which parts of the line are being managed by which manager. So for the longer line, say you have 70 people or maybe even a little bit more on the line, they would maybe assign two managers because that's a large scope of, you know, team to kind of uh, manage for, for one person. And then those two managers would sort of coordinate. And often there's also kind of an implicit um, uh, hierarchy there where you've got a, kind of an upper manager and a kind of a lower manager, maybe somebody with you know more experience and less experience. So sometimes we can identify that. And then we've, we've played around a bit with you know looking at whether it's really the sort of minimum characteristics that matter or it's the maximum or is it the average. And in general, we find that things are pr pretty consistent um, overall when we look at those three. So we kind of just focus on the average characteristics when we have that problem. But, you know, suffice it to say, I think you know, we've also looked at the sort of subsample of managers where just have one line, uh, one manager per line. And there, you know, the, the major conclusions go through as well. And, you know, kind of that gives us a bit of reassurance that the way we're thinking about, you know, assigning these kind of managerial characteristics to the line uh, makes sense. What is the measure of productivity? So it's a really useful and interesting measure for economists to use. So the, the core measure of productivity that we use is, you know, just how many garments are coming off of a particular line, right? So you, you, you're making t-shirts and in any unit time, say one day, you know, you're going to have a certain quantity of t-shirts coming off of the line that you made 300 t-shirts. The way that we kind of make this comparable, and this is the standard in the industry, is by looking at the complexity of the particular garment, right? So we want to say, you know, if, if everything we looked at was t-shirts, I think we'd be fine. But, you know, garment firms sometimes make t-shirts, they make pants, they make, you know, button-down shirts, they make sweaters. So, you know, all of those things are going to be different complexity. They're going to require a different amount of kind of production time to make. And so how do we kind of standardize that productivity across settings? Because you might have many more T-shirts coming off a line for any given unit of time than, than say, a button-down shirt. So the way that we standardize that is essentially by accounting for that complexity. And so we say, you know, there's a standard measure in this industry um, called the standard allowable minute which essentially is the amount of time that, you know, in an ideal setting, it should take to make a particular garment. So suppose it should take, you know, three minutes to make a button-down shirt, okay, from, from start to finish on this production line. We can standardize the production that's coming off of the line by that measure, and that kind of gives us a sort of comparable measure of productivity, which, we, which, was, which is termed efficiency in our setting that we can then compare across lines and across time. One thing that you have in your setting is that different lines are doing different styles uh, at any one point in time. And maybe a line may be doing a certain style today and a different tomorrow. So you are going to essentially like control for style fix effects or look at uh, learning patterns and everything. But if this measure of a, you know, like an ideal efficiency that you got from your industry handbooks, if that was perfect, in some sense, in a standard regression, you would need to control for style fix effects, right? Because exactly. the difficulty of every style will be identical. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, once it has been normalized by that measure. So one important thing that we haven't uh, touched upon yet is the fact that there is a learning aspect that is important here. And you have some descriptive statistics motivating your focus on 
the fact that there is a heterogeneity both on the productivity that uh, different managers can generate for their lines and also heterogeneity in the learning process. Uh, what are uh, descriptive statistics stylized facts that made you realize that the learning aspect was important here? Yeah, that's a great question. So learning by doing is, of course, an incredible engine of productivity in many industries. Um, and there's been some really nice papers over the years that have that have tackled, you know, learning by doing in manufacturing uh, for things like, you know, shipbuilding or airplane building, et cetera. This was really interesting. Automobiles is another example. Um, this is an interesting setting because, you know, orders in, in the garment setting, you know, don't last for, say, a year or something like that, right? They're pretty short term. So you might be making, say, you know, 10,000 T-shirts for Abercrombie and Fitch. And the the T-shirt would take about uh, three weeks to to make, and then that would you know be shipped out. Then you might kind of Abercrombie might get back in touch with you later and say, hey, we actually love this T-shirt. We you know it's sold out. We need thirty thousand more. So you would go back to making that. So that's what we kind of see in the data is that you know the average spell for making a particular order is something like three weeks or something like that, three to four weeks. And then, you know, it's very common to see that order being placed again later in the season because um, the fashion industry is very, you know, idiosyncratic and has these sort of very random, you know, flows of what people like and, you know, what people will buy in any particular season. So this is just a response to that. But so learning is incredibly important in this setting and actually becomes central to the paper. When we got involved in the, you know, thinking about kind of what is the role of managerial quality, it turns out, you know, that different managers uh, and their teams learn very differently than others. And that essential heterogeneity is sort of, you know, a key part of what we do in the paper in terms of estimating the impacts of managerial quality overall. So um, just to give you kind of a sense, when you start an order, most managers will and their teams will start out at an efficiency of, you know, something close to 35 or 40 percent. OK, by the end of the order, say three weeks or four weeks in, that efficiency is something like 60 or 65 percent. Right. So there's, you know, a 50 percent or more increase in efficiency over the course of an order that reflects the basic learning by doing that the team does and that the manager kind of enables. And when we started looking at heterogeneity, we noticed a few different things re related to the heterogeneity that, uh, you know, that, that managers may be bringing to the table. So the first is around kind of like initial productivity. Where do you actually start, right? How, how fast does your line go right at the beginning when you're taking on a new order? Um, that may reflect something about the manager's ability to, you know, set up the line correctly to motivate and, uh, you know, communicate to workers what what is about to happen when they start a new order and what might be different from what they are used to. The next piece is is kind of the the rate of learning. So, you know, how quickly is that slope uh, rising, right? So, how how quickly are you learning about the production of this new product? So, even if you started low, for example. You know, certain managers might notice things as we, you know, go about the first few days of the production process. I might think, hey, you know what, we should move this machine here or we should change the configuration or, you know, here's the real bottleneck we're experiencing with this particular product. And that might kind of increase the slope of that learning. The final thing is around the kind of, you know, asymptote or where the sort of learning flattens out, right? Because some managers 
are able to get that flattened out learning to 55%. And some managers are able to get it up to 65%. So, you know, that peak efficiency, the kind of steady state efficiency for the order ends up, uh, you know, varying quite dramatically across managers as well. And interestingly, that is really, really important when you think about where the firm makes its money, because short orders are, are tend to be sort of not profitable or have a very tiny margin for most of these garment firms, because a lot of the time you just spend learning how to make the order and then it's over, right? So if you're only making a thousand shirts, you know, for the gap, you're going to start out at 40% efficiency and you'll go maybe to 47% and then you'll be done. So obviously you're assuming here, maybe that's the industry practice that the price for the unit is independent of the number of units um, that, that are ordered, right? That doesn't have to be the case. Correct, exactly, right. It does not, but it tends to be that, you know, so, so what happens is there's, of course, a very interesting and complex process that goes into the negotiation of orders, you know, and contracts with buyers. And, you know, that's going to that's gonna have a lot of things associated with it. it. depends on sort of what your relationship is with that buyer, you know, external forces, how badly that buyer needs the T-shirts and, and all that stuff. But the way that that process works is, you know, there's a price that's negotiated beforehand and a quantity and then the firm schedules that order in to the next available line that's that's uh you know that's there i mean i guess that in some sense that's irrelevant relative to the operational process right like Correct. whether the firm makes more or less money or something Correct. you you still want to you, you know, still want uh, to optimize that that learning you know that the one thing I'll say, you know, that that is potentially related is is if I'm thinking about maybe there's different kind of managers, for example, that some managers are really good at, you know, that ramping up the efficiency in the early days, but maybe their peak efficiency is not really high. Whereas some managers have a really high peak efficiency. Maybe they take a while, but then when they get to the peak, it's really high, like 70% efficient. If that's the case, you know, and uh, then that then the sort of order size really ends up mattering. So th that becomes a complex problem for the firm. But you know, in terms of managerial quality, I think you're right, more or less, that you know, I, I want to optimize all of that if I can, and this kind of depends on what managers are available. So the objective of the paper is to study what characteristics uh, of the managers' skills and behaviors make them more productive, both in terms of the levels and the rate of learning. Right. So there are uh, three parts uh, to the paper. So first, you run regressions to estimate both the managerial effects and the managerial differences in the rate of learning. Number two, you give managers a set of surveys and experiments to measure their characteristics and create variables capturing these dimensions of their abilities and behaviors. And lastly, you link the first two, that is, you link the estimates of the fixed effects and learning slopes to the managerial characteristics Correct. to identify what characteristics matter for what dimension of productivity. So with respect to this first step, can you tell us how do you do this? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, you summarize the process process really well. Essentially, you know, what, what we do in terms of calculating sort of managerial productivity effects is we essentially look kind of within orders, we can look at kind of every day, how productive is a particular manager. And then we've got, you know, um, across orders, managers kind of moving around uh, at times to different orders. And so we essentially create these kind of connected sets 
that exploit these managerial changes uh, over time. And then we kind of, you know, demonstrate exogeneity in, in some of the way that about Kramer and Margolis have in their, in their, in their seminal work, uh, looking at estimating similar effects. And we essentially, you know, instead of looking at kind of workers moving across firms, we're basically here just looking at managers, you know, moving essentially across orders. And we are able to estimate those uh, those fixed effects using this kind of two-way fixed effect model. What this relies on is, is, is essentially a, a bunch of dimensions of exogeneity that we then check for. And as I won't bore you with the details of that, but... That's not a problem. But one thing that I would say... With respect to this, like a AKM, this is about Kramars and Margolis, yes. uh, a model that you said it's seminal, it's indeed seminal, but at the same time, it is not daunting. It's essentially a regression with fixed effects, right? So, That's right. Exactly. you know, people refer to it like as a model and, and it is true that in order to estimate these fixed effects or, or give some type of a causal interpretation to these fixed effects, a set of conditions need to be met. But it's not as if you need some type of like a complex methodology to run any one of these models. No, it's just you no, put no, in no. stata, you know, fixed effects of this, fixed effects of that. That's it. You have got yeah, that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that's prob probably the appeal of, of the methodology is it's fairly simple to implement. I would say, you know, I think the skepticism that I'm hearing or, you know, that just... Questioning the, you know, I think when, when something is simple, you run the risk of it being misapplied as well. <laughs> so I think I think you're absolutely right in that sense. Um, and I think we're actually learning kind of collectively as a, as a literature, as I'm sure you, you know, have know if you follow this space, there's, there's been a, a nice set of recent papers that have looked at some of the assumptions underlying the original AKM work. Card has done some work on this. Michael Best has done some really nice work looking at what you really need uh, to, you know, to kind of be confident of the exogeneity of some of these uh, moves. But, you know, in principle, I think you need some sort of exogeneity that's driving people, you know, to be assigned in our setting to be, you know, to be assigned to orders in a kind of an exogenous way um, enough that you uh, that you can kind of credibly identify these things as 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 causal effects. So I think the you know the 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 piece that helps us a lot here is the sort of just-in-time feature of production in this setting. So, you know, if Gap places an order, say, with, with the, the supplier firm that we uh, are partnered with in this study, Gap will say, we need 20,000 t-shirts next month, okay? The, the supplier will say, great, so essentially we need to make that as soon as possible. So they then will search for, within the sort of factories that, you know, Gap has contracted with, They'll say, well, okay, Jordi's line and Uch's line are the ones that are finishing up next, okay? They'll be done with their orders the soonest. That's who we have to assign because we want the production to happen as soon as possible, right? And that's process of kind of like assigning orders to managers just in time to finish the production essentially takes care a lot of the exogeneity because what you don't want is, you know, we're going to wait because Jordi is a really great manager. So we want him to handle this order, right? When we get into things like that, then then we have problems with the sort of assignment process. So so, so that's what we kind of check. And, and that's essentially what, what's going on in this setting that, that sort of helps us. So just to be clear, you have obtained two estimates for every manager. So the, the AKM 
dimension of it is that you want to take out the line fix effects or control for the line fix effects. But this is uh, slightly unusual in that for every manager, you have two separate fix right. effects, as right. you have been mentioning throughout. One of them is on the uh, initial productivity, and the other one is on the slope Yes. the relation between productivity and the number of units are produced or the number of days producing that. Now, with respect to the second uh, step, which is like a, you know, a, a different part, if you want, which is the one in which you are going to measure the characteristics of these uh, managers. So the second stage involves something that you call measuring the latent factors of managerial quality. So before we go into how you measure these latent factors uh, in your paper. I want to make sure that I understood uh, what the rationale for your complicated measurement process is. So in social sciences in general, of course, in economics as well, it is often the case that there is a theoretical concept that we are interested in. We want to put that concept in the right-hand side. But the problem is that the empirical counterpart of this concept doesn't capture it perfectly, but instead capture it with some error. Okay, it's just a proxy yes. for that theoretical concept. Yes. So then we run a regression. We find that the coefficient uh, for this proxy is not very large or is not even statistically significant. And then we don't know whether the reason for this is that our theory that the concept matters is wrong or instead that the measurement error is so high that the attenuation bias has completely dominated the regression. Right. So if I understood it well, what you want to do here is to measure these concepts or characteristics of latent factors of the, of the features of these managers without error so that you can start to run horse races between them in terms of explaining the manager uh, fixed effects in the productivity regressions so that if Instead, you were to run a horse race between two proxies without your complicated model, and one of them wins. You don't know whether the one who won was a confirmation of the theory that this concept matters, right. or instead maybe the measurement error on that concept, the way that the proxy was capturing that concept was better. Uh, and that's what made it succeed, if you want, in that horse race. Is this kind of the rationale behind what you do? Yeah. So it's, first of all, yeah, that's a wonderful explanation. I think I think there's two things that are important here. One, as you mentioned, is is related to measurement error and you know the sort of origins for these measurement systems. Um, you know, in the econometrics literature, come from that basic idea that you've got. A certain theoretical concept, you have a bunch of proxies for it. Which one should you use? Well, maybe you can use some kind of factor structure to you know, uncover what's the kind of underlying unobserved factor that uh, all of these things are sort of contributing to. And, and then you can uncover the particular contributions of each of those things as well to that underlying factor. The other kind of you know conceptual idea behind this was that we have many things that are kind of related to managerial. But what makes up a manager, right? It's a bunch of practices, a bunch of traits. You know, some of which are underlying fixed traits, and some of which may be malleable personality, the manager's experience, the cognitive skills, demographics of the manager, all of those things constitute the manager and how effective he is. So, you know, when we measure things, we may include a whole gamut of, you know, if you look at the kind of 
management and organizations literature, um, who have been doing this for many, many years. There's so many different dimensions of, uh, um, you know, what, what makes a manager effective, potentially, that if you start putting all of these things on the right-hand side, if you just measured, you know, each one of these things independently, you might start getting some collinearity. And so, you know, what we wanted to think about was, can we sort of divide up all of these various traits and practices and features into their sort of underlying components? And then within each of the components, right, um, take managerial attention, okay? So part of that's going to be kind of, you know, how often you're monitoring things and how much effort you put into that. Part of it's going to be how effective you are at motivating workers how much effort you put into meeting targets uh, and how much attention you're paying to those, active personnel management, et cetera. All of these things are going to be sort of, you know, part of managerial attention, okay? If we put all those things into a regression, we'd likely get some collinearity. It's not clear which one of those things is going to be important and, and not and what would show up, you know, in our regression. So we want to sort of extract an underlying factor. We think these things are all kind of linked. Now we're going to let the data sort of tell us um, what the underlying factor is and how much those things kind of load onto that underlying factor, right? So, so that's the other reason why we do this is that, you know, we, we want to condense the sort of many, many dimensions of managerial quality into sort of something that is more tractable, but still kind of general. So what we end up with, and, you know, there's different ways to do this. You know, you could just say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sort of do this completely unstructured and have, you know, no boundaries on the groupings at all. And then let the sort of like algorithm tell us what should be grouped together and under which factors. You know, that tends to be a pretty noisy and process and one that's really sensitive to what you're including into the, you know, big set and what you're not. What we opted for was for kind of specifying, you know, groups of characteristics or features or uh, practices that we thought would naturally be part of the same kind of general factors. And then letting the algorithms within those groupings decide, you know, what the loadings are, whether there's multiple factors there or not. Um, for example, if you lump in locus of control, patience, you know, risk aversion, perseverance, self-esteem, conscientiousness, a bunch of these personality characteristics into one big factor, what you actually end up getting is that there's two distinct factors that are there created. There's two dimensions of personality in some sense. And actually splitting those up is incredibly important and plays very much into, you know, our, our, what we find to be very, very important for productivity. In some sense, we adopt sort of a middle ground strategy here between full agnosticism and fully specifying everything. So we, we sort of tinker with things until we have essentially what we think are, you know, uh, I think it's seven separate uh, factors that... Uh, that are distinct and that kind of, you know, when you put them together, embody the, the kind of very nuanced, you know, portrait of, of a manager. So I'm going to list these seven factors here. Tenure, demographics, cognitive skill, control, personality, autonomy, and attention. So now you have a number of measurements that come from surveys, uh, maybe administrative data, maybe experiments about each of these managers. And for each measurement, you have an equation linking the measurement to the factor that affects it. For instance, you have four measurements that are supposed to capture the concept tenure. 
tenure supervising the current line, tenure as supervisor, tenure in the garment industry, and total number of years working. I think that this is the easiest possible uh, example or the most defendable example in that one will naturally assume that these four things go together under a concept called tenure and they don't link to the others. With the others, you know, you make choices. You know, one can always quibble with any choices and everything, but that's fine. So now you have, you create a set of equations, one equation for each uh, of these measurements. So the left-hand side is the measurement that you observe. So tenure supervising the current line, that will be the measurement. And the right-hand side has an intercept and a slope, which you do not observe. You are going to uh, estimate it, I guess. But then it has the latent factor, which you do not observe either. So the latent factor here will be the tenure. But tenure is something that is not in your data. There is no entry in an Excel spreadsheet called tenure. Exactly. So I wanted to know how is it that you can estimate regressions for which you don't have anything in the right-hand side on your data set. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, essentially, you know, we we essentially construct this kind of, you know, we, we have a bunch of error-ridden measures that, that we observe from the survey. These are the measurements. Ex- exactly, exactly. And then we essentially... That's the left-hand side. Uh, right. And so then, you, you know, we, we put them all into this kind of latent factor measurement system, um, which is, you know, uh, an econometric technique that, um, you know, Jim Heckman and Fabio and Horatio Atanasio pioneered uh, and, and kind of worked on in the in the uh, work in the space of like child development related to uh, work. And essentially, we use that measurement system to recover the joint distribution of latent latent factors and the learning parameters from the first stage. Okay, so basically, from using that, you know, all those error ridden survey measures, we recover that right hand side that you're talking about. And then that procedure lets us construct synthetic data of the factors and the learning parameters. And then we essentially, in the third stage, we jointly estimate the system of equations, the right-hand side and the left-hand side using nonlinear least squares. So essentially, you know, we bootstrap this whole procedure, you know, from, from the top. So essentially... We do this many times and, and recover standard errors. Um, uh, and, and again, there we're following sort of some of the literature that has uh, done this uh, in recent years. Michael Best's work in particular um, was an inspiration for that. Now you have the generated latent factors for each manager. Now we move to the third step. You have... Uh, the individual fixed effects, there are two for each manager in terms of the initial productivity and the rate of learning on one hand, and then the latent factors of each of the managers on the other hand. Mm-hmm. How do you link them to each other? Essentially, you run a regression of the manager fixed effects on the latent factors? Exactly. So that's right. So then we, you know, so that third step is essentially running that nonlinear least squares regression and, and coming up with the intercept and slopes uh, of these factors. So what do you find? Just in, I mean, generally in terms of results of yeah. uh, maybe across each of these uh, three stages? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, so in terms of the, the kind of, there, there's two kind of sets of results I think that are interesting. One is just interpreting some of the loadings um, that we find. And so, like I mentioned, 
part of this comes out of our decisions on on what we grouped together and and you know what we chose to put together but we you know we were explored uh, quite a lot of sensitivity analysis around kind of if we change this grouping what does it look like if we make it into one big factor does it produce you know um, two different factors when we do kind of uh, that factor analysis um, that kind of yields a bunch of interesting stuff, but, you know, I think, you know, just to highlight a few things that I thought were really interesting. One we discussed already, but one was the kind of importance that already emerges, even when you look at the just grouping and factors and loadings when, that when we're thinking about personality, right. Uh, and, you know, I'll just mention in general, there's a, there's a huge industry now in, you know, a lot of white collar companies in particular are looking at measurements of personality for their managers, right? There's this kind of general acceptance that personality matters. And that's, of course, a very broad set of things uh, that are kind of captured by that term. So just to, just, just to remind uh, everybody, personality was one of the seven latent factors that we mentioned earlier. Exactly. exactly. And so, you know, things like you know, if you've if the listeners have have heard of the Big Five, you know, measure uh, measures of personality. You know, things like grit have been incredibly important. You know, self esteem, conscientiousness, perseverance—all these things kind of you know one might think are very linked to productivity and to your ability to manage a large team. They might be very important. So, you know, we, we accordingly in this work, we kind of survey uh, on a bunch of measures of personality. But it turns out, you know, that when we group everything together, two distinct factors em emerge, um, one around what we call control and the other what, around what we call personality. So the control factor, the, the biggest loading there by far is on the kind of internal locus of control. So, you know, this measure essentially is about how much do I think that the kind of consequences that are going around around me in life are result of my own actions versus the result of things that are out of my control, right? So, of course, you know, in general, it's going to be some mix of the two. What happens in my life is, is partly what you know, I'm in control of and what, you know, is outside of my control. The question is kind of how much on average do I kind of, you know, interpret things that go on as something that I was responsible for, my actions were responsible for versus things that are just out of my hands or out of my control. Turns out that that internal locus of control is incredibly important. And it turns out later on, I'll, tell, I'll share that, you know, it's quite important for productivity as well for these measures. The other things that are in that factor are uh, patience and risk aversion. So, you know, we measured these in kind of standard survey measure ways. And essentially, the, the presence of more patience and uh, more risk aversion kind of positively play into that factor of control. The other kind of distinct factor that emerged was what we called personality, which is kind of all these other personality measures. So, you know, there, there are a few things that really drove that measure um, and in equal parts, perseverance, conscientiousness, and self-esteem. So all of those things tended to be quite important for that factor and also kind of to a certain extent play into productivity. The other thing that was in that factor was uh, psychological distress, which was essentially a measure of, you know, mental health. Sorry, just to, just to be clear, you are now listing the different ingredients yes. that turn out to be good predictors inside your theoretical concept. Correct. One of the seven theoretical concepts, Correct. right? Correct. So exactly. you were saying that the way that uh, in your surveys or experiments, you were measuring something called internal locus of control. 
seem to be a big determinant of whether a manager had a higher or lower control latent factor. Exactly. That's correct. Correct. Not not related to productivity, just... just right now, we are not relating it to productivity. Exactly. Right. Within the factor, these things tended to be kind of predictive of that underlying factor. Um, I mean, practice this is because... Because if you are measuring the same latent factor in four different ways with four different uh, measurements and two of them are very strongly correlated with each other and the other two are not, then essentially you are saying, well, the the second two are essentially noise or or they are not really measuring that so well, but the two that are very strongly correlated with each other, they are really capturing that underlying concept. That's kind of the idea here. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, you know, along those lines, just, just one more, you know, example of this. So when we looked at attention, right, managerial attention, I kind of discussed a, a bunch of the things that could go into there earlier. Um, you know, monitoring frequency was by far the kind of strongest to emerge within that factor. Um, and that was very highly correlated with this idea of active personnel management. So how actively are you engaging with your employees? How actively are you changing things that your employees do on a regular basis? Um, but then the other factors there, uh, the other uh, pieces in that, you know, are were either noisier or were not very uh, related to that factor. So efforts to meet targets, you know, issues motivating workers and resistance you meet, those things tend to not to be. So, you know, in some sense, it, it to me, it sort of that process was very illuminating because it kind of validated the idea that it's important to remain agnostic because we don't really know a priori. We might have lots of different hunches about what is interesting and what is very related to productivity and what's not, but the data kind of let us know what really matters within each of these factors and what's kind of more noisy. Okay, so so then finally, the, now moving. That was to, the first part in, in in measuring the factors. Now mm-hmm. you're going to relate them to productivity. Exactly right. So so now moving to the sort of like what is important for productivity. The w- one way we do this in the paper, which is kind of nice to share verbally, is by thinking about sort of if you had you know short orders, right? What would be really important for a manager versus if you had long orders, what would be really important for the manager? And the key difference being when you're thinking about short orders, that's thinking about the rate of learning. So most of the time, then you're going to be kind of on the learning curve and not at the kind of like asymptote. And then long order is going to be the opposite, basically, you know, uh, where where are you asymptoting, right? So, um, so for short orders, there are a few things that end up being really important for productivity. So for actually for, for, for both short and long orders, um, cognitive skills are incredibly important. Um, so, you know, uh, this is kind of uh, the, the things that went into this factor where scores on an arithmetic test, uh, a digit span recall test which is kind of, uh, you know, listing out a bunch of digits and seeing how many the person could repeat and remember. Um, The other thing that was really, really important was control. Uh, The idea of this kind of like internally facing locus of control that the, the feature that I feel, you know, that I am in charge of my, you know, destiny or the things that affect, uh, you know, I can affect my kind of surroundings and cause the consequences around me. And the other thing that was, you know, also quite predictive by way of its kind of correlations with other factors is demographics. There we kind of looked at two component measures, uh, egalitarianism and demographic similarity. 
So basically, you know, those three things ended up being quite important for both short orders and long orders. But interestingly, and you know, this distinction is important for the firm in some sense, because long orders are kind of where the margins really are. And so I really want to, you know, focus on the stuff that, you know, is impactful for those. And if you look at, you know, kind of overall productivity, uh, since this firm does a lot of long orders, that's what's really, this is what, you know, these features are really going to show up here in terms of being overall important on average productivity. So the additional features that there are tenure, right? So how long have you been supervising garment lines and how long have you been working in the industry? Autonomy, meaning how much do you delegate and involve the, uh, your, your, your employees in your decision-making process um, versus kind of make decisions on your own? Attention and again by way of correlations with other factors, personality. Okay, so you know, these these features were really interesting because again, uh, you know the, the the process revealed not only do you get different kind of things being important for long versus short orders. But also, when we're thinking about these long orders, you know, I think people are quite okay or would be very happy with the idea that tenure or, you know, cognitive ability are very correlated with productivity. That makes a lot of sense to most people. But, you know, things like uh, control and attention and even to a certain extent autonomy, those things, it's less clear that, you know, those factors would be um, big contributors to productivity, but they end up being, you know... Uh, you know, just as or even more of a contributor than those kind of traditionally measured things like tenure and cognitive skills. So those, that's some of the sort of surprising things that came out of that analysis. So I, I want to conclude by trying to understand what you have done here and the, how it improves on what I mentioned earlier yeah. was my naive approach, you know, to trying to do this right. without having read Heckman and Kuna and Otanasio and all this. Right. Uh, so, so we said, you know, if you run a regression, that the proxy is capturing this thing with measurement error, we don't really know, and so on. But the thing that you have done here is really complicated. Um, you know, an advantage of, I guess, running a simple regression is that the um, estimation is simple to understand. On the other hand, uh, your procedure has many different parts. There are many potential decisions that you make along the way. You take the coefficients from here, you plug them somewhere else, you bootstrap, mm -hmm. you yeah. create a synthetic data set. You know, it, uh, isn't it possible that there is also error associated with each one of these procedures yeah. that yeah. compounds as you accumulate more and more steps? And that means that the choice between you know, the simplest possible naive approach and the complicated approach that theoretically works very well, but, you know, in practice yeah. may go wrong at different stages is not necessarily super clear cut. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of limitations, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we made a lot of decisions along the way. I mean, starting with what to survey, right? We, of course, we couldn't have a compendium of all possible, you know, measures of personality traits and characteristics and, and practices of managers. So we had to make some decisions about which modules were important, which modules were just repetitive, which ones were not going to survey well, which ones were just, you know, great things, but we couldn't add them for length of time, all of that. 
Then we, you know, of course, made a lot of decisions along the way related to um, the grouping of these measures. And we've discussed that, you know, the, the problems there and, you know, that the fact that that requires a lot of sensitivity, sensitivity analysis, et cetera. Um, we then also made a whole bunch of de decisions around, you know, for example, the functional form of the ultimate kind of simulations on productivity. We have to assume, and we didn't even get to this, constant elasticity of substitution, assume certain error structures, you know, to recover all these factors. I think, you know, all of that is uh, absolutely fraught with potential issues because we may be making the wrong decision or maybe just not the, you know, fully the right decision to, to, to you know, capture the data generating process perfectly. So you're absolutely right. The sort of the more um, decisions we make, the 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 more strict, strict, the kind of conclusions we, you know, we, we have to be more careful about. The advantage here is like, I think, you know, there is, there are some ways that, you know, using kind of either supervised or unsupervised learning tools from the machine learning literature, we can try to condense down some of these, you know, many, many measures into a smaller dimensional set that kind of captures the, you know, inherent styles or the inherent features of of managers, you know, and, and and sort of create a typology in that way. There, uh, Oriana Bandera and colleagues have done really nice work uh, related to this in another setting with CEOs, looking at CEOs uh, and styles, and kind of their work is super interesting in that it kind of it creates out of many measures a simple typology of you know just two types of CEOs and then is able to kind of say, how are these two types of CEOs different in what they do and don't do? And is one of them, you know, more productive than the other? And can we, you know, uncover causal effects like that? Obviously, you know, then we're sort of simplifying a lot by saying there's only two types of managers who or CEOs or managers or whatever who exist. We don't have a lot of kind of breath to say, you know, in nuance, what, what's really going on here? What are the features that in particular matter? You sort of, you're relegated to a bit of more of a black box still. So I think, you know, there, there are two different branches, like, you know, depending on kind of which poison you prefer, um, you know, we just went down this this road. Um, what, I, what it does allow us to do is, is make the following, you know, interesting remarks. And I'll, I'll just conclude the discussion with this. One is we can use in-sample variation in pay uh, of managers to look at, you know, what is the firm sort of missing out on in terms of rewarding managers on certain characteristics that potentially are incredibly productive. So, you know, just to give you an example, um, often pay structures for managers, for all workers, are determined partially based on tenure and education levels, okay, which might proxy for cognitive ability. So for those two things, you know, we see this in the data, um, they're important for productivity and managers are rewarded for those things, right? But there are other features that are just as, if not more important for productivity, like autonomy, attention, and control that managers are essentially not rewarded for, or there's, you know, not less of a link in terms of the pay variation, but are incredibly important for productivity. Why not reward the managers on the fixed effects? that you estimate in the first stage. Yeah. That, that wouldn't need the second and third steps if you want. Yeah. So often firms are incapable of calculating those fixed effects accurately, right? You know, sort of the way that we can at, as economists. 
what they do reward on, which is what exactly, uh, you know, agree, like there's a, there's a pay for performance uh, feature, right? You could just reward based on performance. And, you know, in some sense that captures fixed effect, in some sense it captures other things, but, you know, and then we can think about the kind of optimal reward structure for the firm. It, you know, there's been a lot of work on this in this area, but effectively it relates to, you know, a balance between certain, you know, things related to recruitment and tenure versus rewarding on performance risk, you know, uh, who's going to shoulder the risk, et cetera. You know, uh, I'm sure you know that literature very well. But the, but you know, the crux of it is if we could either screen in the labor market and, and pick up managers who are good on these kind of less rewarded dimensions, or alternatively train our existing managers in particular dimensions, we could actually generate quite a lot of productivity. And so, you know, in these counterfactual scenarios that we outline in the paper, we essentially dial up um, certain characteristics, like, for example, autonomy or control um, or dial up the attention that managers are paying and say, look, if you're able to screen effectively in this way, then you might you know, see this increase in productivity. And if you're able to train in this way, you might see that increase in productivity. The really cool thing that we're, we ended up doing as a result of this paper, and this is kind of the, the, the most fun you know, uh, piece of this, I think, is we then took those recommendations literally, and we actually designed uh, randomized control trials, and you know, in which we actually then screened for those particular kinds of managers, and also train on the particular things that we found to be very effective. So the training RCT is done, and and uh, we've got a paper. It's on my website. It's it's super exciting, and we essentially find that when you train managers in exactly the ways that we kind of laid out in this paper, they get much more productive. And then we have a lot of interesting features around how should the firm delegate and who does it choose for training, which we layered on top of that experiment to to think about kind of optimal allocation. So, uh, you know, I'd love to. We can chat about that in another podcast episode, but uh, that training paper we went and did, and it's a you know resounding confirmation of what we're finding in this one. The screening paper, uh, the screening trial is ongoing right now, and the really interesting bit about that trial. So I, I don't have results to report yet because we're in the middle of it. But um, the super interesting bit about that trial is that about eighty percent of the frontline workforce in this setting is women. About eighty percent of their immediate immediate supervisors who we're dealing with in this paper are men. Okay. So you're recruiting essentially all of the, you know, supervisors from a very tiny fraction of the frontline population. That's just bad practice in general. And, you know, not to mention it's discriminatory towards women. It prevents women from having, you know, upward economic progress and promotion through the career ladder. It discourages women from sticking on with, you know, formal sector work, all that kind of stuff. So what we're doing with that uh, trial is we're essentially screening frontline female garment workers to see, you know, which of them might have those critical characteristics, which we found to be super effective in this paper, and then promoting them into managerial roles, as well as then supplementing their skills uh, so that, you know, they can be enabled to be good managers. So that's the sort of like next generation of this work. And I'm happy because we're often, you know, you, you do a bunch of simulations and you're like, well, it might work. It might not. You know, the, our paper seems to think it does, but who knows? But we went and kind of took those simulations seriously and designed trials that could test them. Thank you, Achuta, for coming to the podcast. I appreciate your time having me on. Thank you very much. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk 
For links to any other papers that we may have discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.